We're in a summer series through the Old Testament book of Esther. And for those of you who may be here for the very first time, either in this service or in the Life Center, let me summarize the book for you very quickly. For some of you, this will be repeat, but you need to be reminded. Uh, one of the unique things about the book of Esther is that God is missing. You can read the whole book, and the word God, the name God, is not mentioned one time. In fact, on the surface at least, nothing very religious is found in this book called Esther. Now, again, for those of you who were not here recently, let me explain what we looked at in the first chapter as you open God's Word to the book of Esther. And the easy way to find that is to go to the book of Psalms, Take a left, you'll find Job. Take a left one more time, you'll find the book of Esther. So let me review what we looked at last time as we were looking at this book called Esther. The first chapter of Esther opens in an unusual way for a Bible book. The book opens with a drunken party in the palace of King Xerxes, a party that lasts six months. And towards the end of that party, the King Xerxes gets so wasted that he makes a decision that cost him his marriage. It was the kind of place and it was the kind of circumstance where you would never expect to find God. And that's exactly the point of first chapter. We learned last time that God is working even in those places where we would never expect Him to be. Now don't make the mistake of thinking that God only uses religious people. To accomplish his purposes. Don't make this, the mistake that God's miracles are always flashy and God's miracles are always uh, somehow super spiritual. No, God is working. God is always working. And he's working in those places you'd never expect him to be. And sometimes he's working with people you'd never expect him to work with. We also learn that God's miracles don't always look like miracles. You know, when we think of God's miracles, we, we often think of the Old Testament and the miracles that, that are there are, are quite supernatural. They're quite amazing displays of power. The parting of the Red Sea, the sun standing still, the walls of Jericho falling down. These mighty acts of God are indeed mighty. They are amazing. But the mighty acts of God are often linked together through a series of seemingly insignificant, ordinary events. The point is simply this, God's miracles don't always look like miracles. You see, we find a miracle in the book of Esther that maybe doesn't look like a miracle on the surface. But I want you to know that God can work through a burning bush or He can also work through a drunken party. It's hard for us to get our minds around that because that's not the way we see God. That's not the way we think of God working. But indeed, God is sovereign. Indeed, God in His providential ways can work through a drunken party as easily as He can a burning bush. So in chapter 1, Queen Vashti is deposed. To summarize the chapter for you, in chapter 1, the queen of Persia, Queen Vashti, is deposed. And if you'll look in chapter 1, verse 19 for context... Let's see what happens. Therefore, if it pleases the king, one of his assistants is speaking here. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. And now notice the next part of the verse. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. 
So in chapter 2, when we finally come to chapter 2, we find out who that someone else is. In chapter 2, we find out that someone else. And in this setting, as we come to this next scene in the story, here's how the writer sets up the scene. He begins with these words in Esther chapter 2, verse 1. Hope you found it by now. And here's how he begins this story in chapter 2. Later, when the anger of the king Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what, she had, and what he had decreed about her. In setting up this next scene, the writer begins not talking about Esther, but he begins talking about the king. And he begins to talk about his regret. Have you ever had a time when you were angry and you regretted something that you did? Ever had a time where you just kind of blew your top and, and you later regretted what you did? You later regretted what you said? Later you were left with a mess, right? Uh, that's exactly what's happening here. Later, when the anger of the king Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Later, after his anger had subsided, he was left with a mess. You know, I was in Cleveland this week and on a mission trip, and one of the great things about Cleveland and going on a mission trip is that you get to go eat ice cream every night. It was, it was amazing. We went to a place called Honey Hut and another place called Mitchell's Ice Cream. We went to Honey Hut more than once. And so at Honey Hut, they have this ice cream. Well, they have all kinds of ice cream. But the one I got this particular night was I got two scoops. And uh, the bottom scoop was strawberry and the top scoop was banana. And it was like the best banana ice cream I've ever eaten in my life. I mean, it was amazing. I, sat the, I stood there. We were outside and, and I was eating my ice cream and I, and I ate the banana, and then I got it down into the strawberry, and I took the first bite of the strawberry, and then all of a sudden, the cone jumped out of my hand. I'm not exact. I honestly don't know. I guess I talk with my hands. I don't know, but, but the cone jumped out of my hand and went plop, strawberry ice cream laying on the ground, and I'm like, oh. I mean, once it happens, it's over, Right? I mean, you're not going to pick it up and say, that's okay, five-second rule. No, because it's got dirt all in it, you know. You, you're not going to pick that up and eat it, and there's nothing left. I mean, once it happens, once you've got a mess, and there's only one thing to do. It's to pick it up. And, and so I picked it up, and I walked over to the trash can, and apparently a lady nearby, I didn't even notice her, apparently she noticed the, maybe the sadness on my face. I, she, she walked by, she said, don't worry about that. said, the same thing happened to me with my strawberry ice cream at about the same spot. I said, really? She said, yeah, when I was a little girl. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure why she told me that. I don't know if she was intending to, to insult me or encourage me. I'm not exactly sure. But we've all had those times in life where it just kind of went plop. And let me tell you something. Once you plop the ice cream, there's nothing left to do except kind of deal with the mess. That's Xerxes. He had made a decision that was like my ice cream. It just plopped and now he's left with the mess. And so the story begins this way. It says, later... 
when the, his anger had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. We've all had those times, I bet, haven't we? We've all had those times when we've done something we can't undo. We've all had those times when it just happened. You've done something, you can't undo it, and now you're left with a mess. So here in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, Xerxes remembers Vashti. And the word, the Hebrew word remembers has the idea, uh, it's a deep word, it has the idea that perhaps Xerxes was feeling lonely. Or maybe he was still in love. Or maybe at the very least he regretted the decision that he had made regarding the queen. By the way, what's, what's the first word in chapter 1, at least in the NIV? What's the first word? Later. I wonder how much time later. You know, when I studied that and I saw the word later, you should always study the time references in the Bible. So when I saw the word later, I thought, how much later? Well, let me, we won't have time to dig into this. I'll just give you the references. In chapter 1, verse 3, Vashti was deposed in the third year of King Xerxes' reign. In chapter 2, verse 16, Esther is made queen of Persia in the seventh year of his reign. So apparently four years have gone by between chapter 1 and chapter 2. So when we see that word later, it's four years later. Now I wonder what happened between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Well, if you look in the history books, you'll find out that Xerxes made an ambitious but a disastrous attempt to conquer Greece. He was soundly defeated in Greece. And so he goes home defeated. He goes home barely sparing his life. And he goes home to the palace. And he needs more than a harem. He needs a wife. But she's not there. And with all that has happened, his anger against Vashti begins to subside. And the Bible says he remembered Vashti. Even after four years... Even after four years, he still remembers and perhaps regrets the decision he made back then. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you know what it's like to plop. And even years later, you remember, maybe even regret, a decision that you made. As we continue this story, his assistants realize that they need to act quickly because, I, this is just my supposition, it might be that King Xerxes is trying to figure out a way to bring Vashti back. And if he brings Vashti back, their necks are on the line because it was their idea to get rid of her. And, and so we read that they come up with this plan. They know they need to act quickly. So the king's attendants come up with this plan to cheer him up. And let's read the plan, chapter 2. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Not only is this a book where the name of God is missing, 
This is also a book that shows the depravity of our hearts when God is missing from our lives. You see, whatever pangs of remorse Xerxes had for sending Vashti away, those pangs of remorse are quickly forgotten when his attendants come up with this plan. And the plan is simply this. Let's round up all the good-looking women in the kingdom, the virgins, and you choose which one you want. In fact, you can just take them into your bedchambers one each night, and the one that pleases you the best, that's the one you can choose to be queen. And Xerxes' lust is ignited. And he thinks about the beautiful young virgins he will soon meet. And in fact, as he looks forward to this Miss Persia pageant, he begins to think about, not Vashti, he begins to dream about the next Vashti. Josephus, you might be interested in knowing, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that there were as many as 400 women involved in this perverted plan. And then the scene suddenly shifts. It's an incredible story here. The scene suddenly shifts in verse 5. Look what we read about in verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadasha, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl who was not known, sorry, this girl who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Interesting story here. We're introduced to two new characters in this story, a man named Mordecai and a young lady named Esther. And here we see a very different picture. We're introduced here in these verses, not to a pagan king, but to a covenant family. A covenant family struggling to survive in a strange land. God's people struggling to survive in this pagan territory. This is a, a poor family who has known tragedy and loss. They are exiles. They are people who have been taken from their homeland. They're exiles. They, Esther is an orphan. Her mom and dad were killed or at least died of disease or something. We're not told how, but Esther is an orphan. And then Mordecai does his best to raise her. He takes this young lady as his own daughter, and he does as best he can to raise her in that hard, poor environment in which they lived. And then we're told something else very interesting in verse 7. We are told that Esther is beautiful. I want you to notice in verse 7 what it, how it, she is described. It's, she's described as lovely in form and features. You know what that means? The CSV translates it this way. Listen up. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. So much I could say right there, but I'm just going to go right on past that. But guys, listen to this. This was a lady who was beautiful, a young lady, perhaps 20 or a little bit younger. She had an extremely good figure and was extremely good looking. Now, if you're starting to get a little uncomfortable, that's exactly what the author wants you to do. If you're starting to feel like, 
this is not a Bible story I remember hearing in Sunday school. That's exactly what the author wants you to, to experience. I want you to notice that this beautiful young lady has two names. Tell me what they are. I want to hear if you're listening. Tell me what they are. Hadasta and Esther. This is the author's way of saying, here is a beautiful young lady who was trying as best as she could to live in two worlds. There was the Jewish world in which she was raised and the Persian world where she was a captive. To which world does she really belong? There is Hadassah, child of the covenant, citizen of the kingdom of God. And then there is Esther, a pretty Persian girl who is about to be swept up into something she has not planned. And that's a dilemma we all face, isn't it? You may not be as beautiful as Esther. You may, you may not, I don't know, but we all face this kind of dilemma. Every Christian faces this dilemma today because we live in two worlds too. We live in the world of our faith with the family of God and we live in a culture that is pagan and godless. And how do we live in both worlds? That's a dilemma we all have to face to live in the world but not be of the world. Now, as we continue this story that kind of makes us feel uncomfortable, it's about to get worse. Look in verse 8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed... Many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Remember now, Josephus said it was around 400 girls who were brought in during this time. Verse 9. The girl pleased him, pleased Haggai, and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments, and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not received her... her, I'm sorry. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. And every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. You get the picture here, all of these beautiful women. Remember, two weeks ago when we looked in chapter 1, it was, I think, 127 different provinces that, that covered much of the world in that day. So beautiful women from 127 different provinces. From Pakistan to Ethiopia, 127 different provinces. Hundreds and hundreds of beautiful women are selected, and Esther is one of them. She's taken to the king's palace and And as Haggai is reviewing all of these beautiful women, there's something about Esther that strikes him. There's something about her form, something about her features, something about her beauty, maybe even something about the winsomeness in her. And he gives her special attention. He gives her special treatment. He gives her a special place in the palace as he prepares her for the king. Now, everybody listen carefully over in the Life Center. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. I've been in church my entire life, 57 years. I've never heard a sermon or a Bible study on Esther 2. 
I bet you haven't either. In my entire life, 57 years, in all kinds of churches, I've never heard anybody preach or teach on Esther 2, and I think you're about to find out why. Let's read the text, verse 12. Before a girl's turn came, came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return in another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther... The girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel. To go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month of the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials, and he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. You know, this is kind of like one of those TV shows, isn't it? One of those reality TV shows where there's a bachelor and there's all these beautiful women who, who come and line up and he's trying to pick which one he wants. Except this is worse. And can I be honest with you and tell you that sometimes I wish God would push the pause button in a storyline and boldly tell us what he thinks about the story? I really wish that God would put a parenthesis in the text and say, but let me tell you what she did wrong. Let me tell you what, really, what I really think about that. But you need to understand something about narratives. Narratives record what happened, not necessarily what should have happened. Did you hear that? Narratives in the Bible simply record what happened rather than what should have happened. We're not always told at the end of a narrative whether something was good or bad. We're, we're not always given a commentary at the end of a narrative. They're a narrative. They're a story. We don't, we, we're sometimes left to decide for ourselves if it was a good thing or a bad thing. So let me state the obvious here. There is tension in this story. All through chapter 2, there is tension. Here's some of the tension. Esther keeps her Jewish heritage a secret, for one. And in fact, she's told to keep her Jewish heritage a secret, which is totally opposite of what happened like in the book of Daniel. When Daniel stood for his faith and he stood for his God and he refused the king's banquet, he refused the king's meal, Daniel stood for what he believed in. And, but here in this story, Mordecai tells Esther, don't let, him, don't let anybody know that you're a Jew. What's even more troubling than that is apparently she was living in a way where it was obvious that she wasn't a Jew. She was able to keep it a secret. 
Apparently, she wasn't following the dietary laws. Apparently, she wasn't following the Sabbath laws. Apparently, she looked more Persian than she did Jew. There's tension in the story. Was she living out her faith or had she adopted the Persian culture? And then there's the obvious tension of, was she a willing participant in this Miss Persia pageant? Now, you might run to verse 8 and say, well, it says that she was taken. And there's a great debate about what that Hebrew word taken means. Does it mean she was taken by force, taken against her will, or somebody, as we would say, carried her to the palace? Perhaps Esther hated every bit of the circumstances, but we're not told that. Perhaps she enjoyed the attention and the thought of perhaps gaining the the love and of the king, the most powerful man in the world. Perhaps this was, this was something that she dreamed of, becoming queen. We're, we're not told. What we are told is this. She wins the favor of everyone she meets. Something special about her. And what we are told is Esther ultimately wins the throne on the basis of her one-night stand with the king. Now, this is why you've never heard this story in Sunday school. There's too much tension in it for us to teach it in Sunday school. In fact, i got to be honest with you. I almost feel like I need to apologize to you for telling you all of this stuff. But the question is simply this. Was Esther in God's will or out of it? The text doesn't say. But here's what it does say. The text tells us that Esther lost her virginity to a pagan king She won the position of queen and later saved the Jewish nation from which the Messiah would one day come. Do you feel the tension in that? Esther loses her virginity to a pagan king. She becomes queen and saves the Jewish nation from which the Messiah would one day come. You see, we want our heroes in the Bible and heroines in the Bible to be pure and to be perfect. We want them to always do the right thing and always say the right thing. We want our heroes to look and act like heroes. But the hero of the story of Esther is not Esther. It's God. God is the hero in this perverted story. How does God build a kingdom How does God build his kingdom in a world as dark as this one? How does God fulfill his will in a world as dark as this one? Have you ever wondered that about the dark world in which we live? The dark and godless and perverted nation in which we live. How does God accomplish his will in the dark and godless and perverted world? How does God accomplish anything when when people don't even recognize that He, when they live like He's not even there? That's the question that Esther 2 forces on us. And there's two things I want you to get, and I want you to write these down. Two lessons from chapter 2 as I bring this to a point of application. First of all, the first lesson we learn from this story is this. God makes even His enemies serve His purposes. God makes even his enemies serve his purposes. 
God uses wicked men and sinful deeds, and he thwarts their evil design and bends them to his own purposes. I'm going to say that again because I want you to write it down. God uses wicked men and sinful deeds, and he thwarts their evil design, and he bends them to his own purposes. And do you know why he can do that? It is because he is God. He is sovereign, and he providentially can do that to accomplish his plans. You see, let me put it to you this way. Everybody listen. The king's assistants who come up with this plan in verse 2, the king's assistants who come up with this plan that eventually leads to Esther's selection as queen, they became instruments in fulfilling God's purposes. The man who saw Esther one day and said, yes, you need to come to the palace, he was fulfilling God's purposes. The Haggai, who had charge of the harem and noticed Esther and started giving her special privileges and a special place, he was fulfilling God's purposes. Even the pagan king Xerxes, perverted as he was, driven by his lust, even when he chose Esther as queen, he was fulfilling God's purposes. You see, God makes even his enemies serve his purposes. Now, there's a great mystery in that. I understand that. But God wonderfully demonstrates His sovereignty through it all. See, here's what I mean. What was intended for evil, God uses for good. Because God makes even His enemies serve His purposes. Now, in case you're questioning my theology, I want you to understand something. The greatest example of this principle is the cross. When Judas betrayed Jesus, he was serving God's purposes. When the soldiers arrested and beat Jesus, they were serving God's purposes. When Pilate sentenced Jesus to death, he was serving God's purpose. It was when the crowds were cursing him and mocking him and spitting on him, they were serving God's purposes. When the soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross, they were serving God's purposes. They all intended it for evil. But God uses wicked men and sinful deeds, and he thwarts their evil intentions and bends them towards his own purposes. Can anybody say amen to that? That is God. Second lesson is this. I've got to give it to you quickly. Right quickly. Here it is. God accomplishes His will through imperfect people. God accomplishes His will through imperfect people. That's the lesson we learned from Esther 2. Scholars are, div- are divided on Esther's actions Scholars, some want to berate her and call her wicked. Some want to lift her up as a woman of virtue. It's an amazing, when you read the commentaries, it's amazing the different opinions about Esther and what she should have done or could have done. But I think they miss the point. I think the author of this story deliberately doesn't tell us if what she did was right or wrong. Because listen to this, life isn't always neat and tidy. Sometimes we find ourselves facing situations where right and wrong are hard to determine. Every choice seems to be a troubling mixture of right and wrong. And, and if you're, sometimes when we're living in two worlds, it's hard to know what the next decision ought to be. 
Now, let me say this. If you're one of those people who always gets it right, and you always know what's right for everyone else, then God bless you. You probably don't need Esther too. But I do. I don't always know what is right and wrong. It's not easy living in two worlds. And sometimes when I know what's wrong and I know what's right, sometimes I don't make the right decisions. We're often faced with an odd mixture, aren't we, of what's right and what's wrong in this situation. It encourages me to know as I read chapter 2 that God accomplishes His perfect plan through imperfect people. Let me be clear. We are responsible to God to live faithfully to His Word. We are responsible to God to live faithfully and obediently to everything He shows us to do in every situation as best we can, as best we know how. We are responsible to God to live a holy life in obedience to His Holy Word. But... In those times when we're not sure if every decision is the right decision, God is so gracious and so omnipotent that He can use even our blunders for His glory. You see, God accomplishes His will through imperfect people. And aren't you glad that's true? Because I want to tell you something, there are no perfect people here. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are no perfect people. There was one. There was one perfect person, and he died on a cross for the rest of us. Romans 3 says, but now a righteousness has been made known. A righteousness that is not by performance. This is Shorter's translation. A righteousness not... Not brought about by performance, but a righteousness brought about by faith. A, righteous, a righteousness that comes to us when we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins in our place. That's the only righteousness I have, is His righteousness. God accomplishes His plan. His perfect plan through imperfect people. So if you're one of those people where you think, you know, I've got I to gotta get everything right before I can come to God. I've got to work everything out before I can come to God. I, I've got to stop everything I'm doing before I can come to God. You're misunderstanding the gospel. The gospel is not for perfect people. The gospel are for those who desperately need a sovereign God who can take our plops and our messes and still bring glory out of them. So if you've had a plop... If you've looked at a mess of your own making and you're wondering, can God do anything out of this? This divorce? This heartache? This affair? This bad business decision? This arrest? This addiction? Can God do anything out of this? Esther 2 says, oh yeah. So we serve a loving, sovereign God. And he accomplishes his perfect plan through imperfect people. I don't know about you, but I would want to give my life to, to a God like that. I'd want to surrender my life to a God who loves me that much and has that kind of power. A God who can take my messes and use them for his glory. 
a God who can take those things in my life that maybe I'm ashamed of and make me better because of it. Do you need to give your life to Jesus Christ? The hope of the gospel is that though there are none righteous, no, not one, there is a righteous one who died for you, for your sins, so that he could change you and the person you really want to become. Would you pray with me about that? Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to ask you here in this sanctuary or over in the Life Center just to respond to however God has spoken to your heart. Maybe it's to respond to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, to give yourself to Him. You coming as an imperfect person, coming to the perfect one, and say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins, for dying in my place, and I want to give my life to you. Maybe you're coming today just to say, God, there was a time where I made a mess. You know all about that time. And I don't know how you could ever bring anything good out of it, but I just want to surrender my life to you again. I just want to be absolutely surrendered to you. Take this mess and use it for your glory. So, Father, may you do what only you can do. And may you be honored through it all. In Jesus' name, amen.